0: Okay, so, uh, Kim, you sent us this link. I'm opening it right now. This is a Wikipedia page that says, at the very top, it says, list of failed and over budget custom software projects. What? <laughs> what, what is this? <laughs>
1: This is a list of some big swings on the part of so many different government organizations, um, large software companies. And if you look at the problems and the reasons why they failed, you'll
2: see a lot of the same themes pop up over and over again. The usual suspects. I see scope creep, Cost yeah. overrun, low user adoption, just delays, delays, delays. Nothing on this list surprises me. <laughs> oh, this
0: is kind of fascinating.
2: Yeah, look at the money, like the money.
0: That's what's striking me about this list is there. There is a column that says like expected cost, and yes. we're talking like three to six billion U.S. dollars. Mind or, blown. And then there's another column right next to it that says outcome. And it's it's just canceled, scrapped, it
2: look good. canceled, no.
0: scrapped, abandoned, discontinued, canceled, canceled, canceled scrapped, scrapped, canceled.
1: <laughs> I mean,
0: I shouldn't laugh because it's so yeah. painful, but
1: it kind of makes me wonder, like technology is an environment where things tend to go wrong more than they go right. Yeah. And When you're trying to build something so ambitious and so large in its scale and its scope, how do you avoid making the wrong bet on what's going to happen down the road? Mm.
0: This is Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. We're your hosts. I'm Brett Simoneau. And I'm Angela Andrews. We're here to break down questions from the tech industry.
2: Big, small, and, well, sometimes strange. Each episode, we share stories from the people behind the code. Today's question,
0: how bad is betting wrong on the future?
2: Producer Kim Wong is here with our story.
1: So that list I talked about earlier, it was referenced in a book. The book is called DevOps Culture and Practice with OpenShift. A lot of the text of the book talks about how to get things kind of off the ground, and DevOps is obviously, that's what it's for, is to get teams from zero to kind of like cruising altitude as soon as possible, right? So to that point, I wanted to talk to some of the people who are behind the book. One of those people is Noel Connor.
3: I'm a senior principal architect working in the MES solution practice, what to do with Red Hat, I do a lot of things. I'm primarily in the consulting area, um, basically helping customers around the world, uh, basically adopt Red Hat's uh, technology and approaches.
1: I asked Noel, who's based in Ireland, about leaders making the wrong bet on the future, planning for what's there, what's present and not really what there could be down the road. He talks a lot about what he calls architecture.
2: I'm interested in finding out what architecture is. Marketing architecture. It's like mm-hmm. a—I. Th- it comes off as kind of <laughs> like a
1: slang, like not a, not a slang, but like a, a dirty word, uh, the way that he said <laughs> it, because he talked about how sometimes you have people who talk about technology and, and kind of project this air of there's a product that they're making and the product is going to do this amazing thing, but it actually doesn't work.
3: Really good marketing has a, has a fairly significant impact, and we've seen that down through stuff that's gone on in the last number of years on technology projects that failed due to, you know, how hard can it be? And it can actually be very, very hard. I mean, a, a lot of good marketing makes makes things seem really simple and really flexible, and, and you know, it, it, its job is to, is to position technology in the, the right place and the right light, whereas actually um, a lot of times it, – it, they don't want to show, you know, how, how this could potentially go wrong or things like um, the corner cases where it doesn't fit.
0: Well, let's talk about the future a little bit here. You Sure. Right. Because th- mm-hmm. this is something that, you know, we have to make decisions here and now. And a lot of those, a lot of the decisions that we have to make about, you know, the products that we're building or the technologies that we're using, we have to be able to look at, out into the future and make a really good guess about what the future is going to be. And this is really difficult, right?
2: Yes, mm. I know it is because you can there there are companies who you think about it, they have this product that is t- tends to become ubiquitous and they do just one thing. I don't want to say wrong, but kind of going away from where people think technology should go you're heading in the right direction but you make one false move and you've definitely fallen off a cliff so it it's mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to kind of foreshadow but there's really no way to know because we all want to be innovative right we all want to be on the cusp of the next big thing right yeah. and how do we don't know what that is so someone's going to take a bet on something and they're going to lose that bet and that has to happen i think in order for technology to move in the right direction i don't i know if it doesn't sound like it makes sense but someone has to lose in this scenario because every good idea can't be the right idea right Hmm. so that's just my opinion about it there has to be some winners and losers when we're talking about the future
0: it's not just about the products that we're building either. It's about the technologies that we're using
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. to Very build so.
0: and deploy those projects as well, because those are really mm-hmm. important. And I'll say often, you know, they can be really expensive as well. Right.
2: Yes. Yes. yes 100%. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, but those are other kinds of decisions. It's not just sort of like what you're building. It's how you're building it as well.
1: Absolutely. And what teams have to come across and and work with each other, not necessarily from a development standpoint, but just on a logistical standpoint, they have Mm -hmm. to work together to, like, allocate budget for hires, if you need to, you yeah. know, if you need to get somebody on board that has a specific set of skills, or if you need to, like, make a team bigger, or if you have to buy a certain type of testing environment in right, order to right. test your your app, like, all of that needs to be factored in. And those decisions don't necessarily come from the people who are actually writing code, right? Yeah, That's the rub. For me, I feel like guessing about the future is fine as long as you admit to yourself and to everyone around you that you're guessing, Mm, right? As long as you're honest about that. Noel had something great to say about, quote, the horizon that you can see and how important it is to plan for the horizon that you can see within your line of sight while still being innovative.
3: If somebody knows what the future is going to bring, I'd like to to tell me how I'm going to win at casinos because um, it's kind of like a bent horizon sounds like the wrong word, but basically you can only see so far. I mean, we're in the realms of, of containers now and, and clouds. And basically, if you'd said 15 years ago, was this going to happen? Nobody would have known, you know, and also Red Hat, you know, we constantly kind of pop our heads above the parapet, take a look around and see, you know, because we work so much in open source. It's basically there's a lot of community stuff going on and you can see trends that are building and and stuff that's kind of falling away.
1: So Noel started out talking about how situations where you have, quote unquote, architecture, people trying to, you know, have that crystal ball kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. That's a situation where it's really ripe for people to make the wrong bets in technology. I wanted to talk about the real kind of practices and methodologies that we as technologists could employ to prevent teams from going down a bad path. Mm. And for that, I spoke to Tim Beatty, also in Ireland. He's a former Red Hatter and he wrote the book on DevOps along with
4: Noel. And I'm the co-founder of Stellify, which is a solutions company that focuses heavily on visualizing and measuring business outcomes and and sharing that for others to learn from.
1: Here's the thing. When we think of DevOps as Red Hatters, we think of practices and collaboration and innovation and trying to iterate on discovery Mm -hmm. very quickly. But when other people think of DevOps, it has come to mean something else in the industry. It might not. It might not come as a Angel surprise. Laughs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. She's already anticipating what I'm going to say. Um, it may not come as a surprise, but sometimes DevOps is looked upon as something you hire another person to come into your company and mm. do instead of what teams and organizations do as far as changing their culture. I wanted to know how that
2: happened. It became a buzzword and we were hiring for the buzzword and no one... They thought, they thought it was a product or it was, uh, what is it? The, the phrase that we used, architecture. It was one Marketing. of those things that was like, oh, no. I'm going to buy me some DevOps and we're, <laughs> and we're going to get some DevOps in here. And, and it's like, no, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. No, you really have to change your culture internally. Yeah. It will not work or make sense unless you do that. So, yes, it's more of a, a mindset and a methodology and it's not something you can buy online <laughs> i like i'm
1: trying not to laugh I'm, I'm, this is a very serious subject i'm it's trying it's serious, to be serious. Yes, I'm but sorry. uh but I, I keep thinking of like i'm going to come in here and i'm going to devops everything and
2: devops that and devops that chair and devops you're this you're getting dance. devops and you're, and you're getting, getting some getting of that devops, DevOps. <laughs> it, seriously it it's funny now but it yeah it was it was all the rage
4: for a long time, you know, lean was a very in demand buzzword and then agile replaced that and then DevOps replaced that.
2: What's next?
1: I don't know. Make up a word, I guess. <laughs> I, don't
2: I, know. Mean, I I mean, already know the next hot word. It's called zero trust, but <laughs> oh. we're going to be buying some of that zero trust real soon. Oh, you get a zero trust and I get a zero trust. We're all getting yeah. some zero trust. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was curious. I wanted to kind of posit an, an example for for Tim to kind of work on. In Tim and Noel's relationship, they kind of identify each other as Tim being the practices guy and Noel being the tech guy, right? Mm. So I wanted to kind of, I know this sounds bad, I wanted to kind of test Uh, Tim to see what his response would be if I were like a hypothetical tech founder. Okay. So I asked him, imagine a tech founder who's trying to build an app. They have the concept, maybe. They may even have done some, you know, practices like impact mapping to figure out business goals and deliverables. But they're experiencing a lot of scope creep and a lot of increasing costs, Right
0: those things that we were seeing on that list that we looked at at the top of the episode. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. 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 What you don't want to see inside of your project. Yeah. Exactly. So
1: I asked Tim, what are some things that would be very useful for a person in that situation to think Hmm. about? Yeah.
4: Where we encourage learning, where we are prepared to adapt and throw things away and try completely different directions to run lots of experiments, sometimes very cheap experiments, so, so I think you know, and, and and there's a load of practices we talk about in our book around building the foundation of culture to kind of help put that in. There's something you, that takes time, and and also you have to continuously nurture and improve because the moment and there's there's some you know big examples in the news where there hasn't been safety. And that's where companies end up in all sorts of problems. My go-to practices are around in designing of experiments, figuring out what are the hypotheses that we want to test and how can I go and prototype some of my ideas And test them in as lean and cheap way as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean building the tech. It means, you know, figuring out what we think might improve or provide the real gains and seeing if I can go and learn from some real end users about that. And that maybe means, you know, executing things manually and or even putting a very low fidelity prototype in front of some users and getting their feedback.
0: Bring this to life for us, Kim, a little bit. So he's talking about doing these, um, what he's calling cheap experiments. Like what? Like, bring that to life for us.
1: Uh, It's kind of like earlier when I was talking about buying a testing environment for your applications. And I'm definitely not the expert in this. But I think what he's trying to get at is that a lot of founders get into a situation where they have not a plan but a list of desirable things that they want to do and a list of things that they need in order to do them. And they kind of go from there. So you want to do something as cheap as possible and as fast as possible. You don't want to blow your budget on something that only gets you from point A to not point B. You want to get to the next step to development and eventual release as soon and as fast as possible. So some of the examples here, he talks about prototyping and testing. It's something that's really important because you also need to know what your user wants. Just trying to find out the deliverables and the functional requirements you have listed, you have to find out what users want and
2: match those up to what you want to deliver. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that point really hits home because to find out what users want, you have to talk to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. You really do. It sounds so simple, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, but I, I'm sure, you know, if you looked at that list, some folks were, weren't hitting the mark because they weren't doing that early and often. Yeah. Hmm. Early and often. And that is something that I think a
1: lot of the practices within, like, DevOps culture really stress. Don't just do it one time and then say, well, dust yourself off, dust your hands off and go, that's it. And I don't need to go back and find any more information. No, you have to constantly be looking and discovering things.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: And as we're thinking about the, you know, the future, like, you know, we, we talked about how it's really impossible to really predict the future or know exactly the future. But you can know some things about what's happening now, you know, right? in terms of your users and in terms of different things. And you can know those things by doing some of these cheap experiments you know like you don't have to guess at some of this stuff like you Mm. can know some of this stuff within a reasonable doubt right
1: Right. Mm -hmm. i think this is brent very interesting and a really good uh, segue from what you were saying yeah (laughs) which brings me to the next point that tim and noel left me with from an it perspective planning is dead
4: one thing has made me think of, I think, if I think back to the planning I used to do, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, it wasn't planning at all, it was guesses. We were making wild guesses on everything, you know, that moving away from linear thinking, where it's a big, long path from A to B, uh, it's actually, you're going round in loops, you're going round in circles, and what you end up doing could be incredibly different to what you started out, you know, what you thought at first, because you've learned so much along the way,
1: What his point is, is that planning is dead because in order to really think about the future, you have to accept that things go wrong
2: just as often as they go right. That's true. I mean, you learn in those spots where you learn from your mistakes, as they say. When you find out that something goes wrong, well, okay, all right, that's one way not to do something. Let's figure this out again. So that's constant. That's constant. And you, you think of how what you've amassed along this process. Mm. So I get what he means when he says planning is dead. But he's not
0: saying that like all planning is dead, though. Of right? course not.
2: I think that
1: they're saying down the road that planning is going to be not as important, not as imperative as it has been in the past just because there's so many things changing all the time, happening in sync with what development teams are doing, it makes your plans kind of irrelevant within like two or three years, especially if you're working on projects as big as the ones we talk about in the beginning of the episode. Some of those projects went on for so long that there were developments in the field that made the project obsolete.
0: So is it that is he kind of saying that sort of long-term planning is dead and sort of mm. following that rigidly? Is he just saying we need to move our sightline up? It's more like about short-term planning in a way that has a lot of
2: nimbleness? Mm. Yeah. Is that it? Maybe. That sounds... Yeah. Yeah. That To me it sounds like that's what he's saying. Because yeah. technology, you know, 30 years ago, you... It didn't iterate as quickly. So you could plan, you could really plan for the next 10, 15 years. Technology didn't move that fast. But how can you do that now? It's almost impossible. Hmm. So your sight line has to be so much shorter. And you have to be okay with that, but be ready to iterate when the time comes, yeah. if something changes. You said it perfectly, um, that resilience that we need now, because things pivot so much more quickly than they used to.
0: So, I mean, these two have written an entire book about DevOps. What does DevOps give us? Like, What, what are some of those practices that help us be more nimble?
2: Oh, definitely. Can I take this one? Yes, please. I have a couple of ideas about this. Go, go, go. So the whole purpose of DevOps is everything is in code, right? So Mm -hmm. you're not wedded to anything. You know, as long as you have your repos where your code exists and your pipeline, you can really, I want to say, you can be kind of resilient as to as long as your code is there and it can be deployed somewhere. Yeah. What the cloud brings us. It brings us that elasticity. It brings us that flexibility. I think and I hope I'm not I I think this is where you're going with this, but correct me if I'm wrong. But what DevOps buys you is flexibility. It Mm. buys you repeatability. Right. That's Mm. the whole thing to be able to repeat your processes without putting your hands on things. Right. That to me, that's that's what it's buying folks right now it it buys them a lot of agility Mm. yes it's not the long jump it's
1: hopscotch there you're you're getting you're (laughs) getting to the point where you know a lot of people with the long jump it it sounds very appealing but in actuality you know you leave yourself vulnerable and open to a lot of challenges Mm. in the approach with devops you have this continuous feedback loop with your teams as far as what you're doing and why you're doing it. Then you get to test that early and often. You get feedback and go right back into a discovery phase, and now you have this never-ending loop of iteration. It makes development cycles easier and more efficient. Here's Tim again.
4: I mean, I think it it allows us to try things out, it allows us to experiment at relative ease, you know, compared to maybe 10, 20 years ago where it would have taken a big investment and a big leap of faith to try something new out you know all of the technology and the practices and the and the kind of the mindsets around devops takes us down the path of we should embrace the idea of experimentation we run some experiments and it didn't work out because we learned from it and we've done that relatively cheaply um because we're able to build things and deploy them and put them in the hands of users and learn from them uh, much, much faster and at much, much kind of lower effort and low, lower resource cost than what we used to have to do. So when we talk about the future, does DevOps allow us to future proof? No, because, you know, the, the future is still an unknown, but what it does allow us to do, it allows us to kind of just step lots of different directions into the future and then you know, the paths that we do then take down, we can apply with a bit more confidence because we're actually getting some empirical outcomes as we go along.
0: Hmm. Oh, that is so interesting.
4: Yeah. So
0: he's kind of saying like, instead of making like one big bet on something,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like maybe you can make a lot of smaller bets. Yes. And then follow where those bets lead you.
2: Hmm. That's what discovery is. Huh? No longer do we have to go for that kind of long game because we're being yeah. more nimble. You know, it the the what was the word you used? The smaller bets.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> why not? You know, follow follow them where they take you, as opposed to kind of going out there on a limb. That's right. Those
1: small bets, just doing a little at a time, can allow people to discover new things that they probably never thought of in the first place, and most of all practices like those included in devops reduce the likelihood of you ending up on a
2: wikipedia list. <laughs> 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 That's a list you don't want to be on.
1: No.
0: All right, so Kim Angela, let's let's come back to our question. If if you remember, it was how bad is betting wrong on the future? Uh, <laughs> from the wikipedia list it sounds really bad mm-hmm. but what you've brought us today kim is a set of practices and a way of thinking about the future to help us be more future resilient so i'm i'm kind of hoping we could be very practical right now mm. like what are like just a couple of things that we can change about how we think about the future or a couple of things that we can do to make us more resilient.
1: So the first hurdle, right, is to change the way we think about the future and yeah. accept the fact that um, while we're building things and we're in our kind of like by their very nature, these silos, we're in a competitor state with other Mm -hmm. organizations and other teams and other creators trying to do the same things that we're doing, trying to serve the same customers that we're we're Mm -hmm. trying to serve. It seems like designing things and developing things, inherently, you're going to run the risk of someone coming up with some kind of alternative that makes whatever you're building obsolete or makes it undesirable in comparison right there's always a a chance of that happening i think it's important to understand that there are practices in place to get from zero to a cruising altitude kind of in a metaphorical way very quickly there Mm -hmm. are practices that you can employ to find out what the people that are going to use your app what do they want the people that are going to use whatever product you're trying to build what do they really need what is it that's going to make them you know choose your product amongst a host of other ones that are being offered to them. To me, that's part of trying to break down the future and trying to get away from this crystal ball mentality and going towards a, what I call hopscotch mentality, where Mm. you're getting to the next small kind of like milestone. Yes, at a time, exactly.
0: But also what I love about that metaphor is like, Hopscotch is fun.
1: It is. <laughs> you know? it, is. Like,
2: <laughs> it makes it so much less stressful when you think about moving toward the future. It makes mm. it a lot less stressful. Just a square at a time.
0: Yeah, and it takes a lot of the weight off of the decisions that you're making.
2: Definitely. Can you imagine <laughs> having yeah. to have the forethought of what something needs to be for the mm. next ten years, fifteen yeah. years? Yeah, a lot of pressure. That. A lot of pressure. How about we just do one square at a time and see where Mm. it takes us? Mm. And that does it for this episode of Compiler.
0: Today's episode was produced by Kim Huang and Caroline Craighead. Victoria Lawton always brings us back to the future.
2: Our audio engineer is Elizabeth Hart. Special thanks to Sean Cole. Our theme song was composed by Mary Anchetta.
0: A big thank you to our guests, Noel O'Connor and Tim Beatty.
2: Our audio team includes Lee Day, Stephanie Wunderlich, Mike Esser, Laura Barnes, Claire Allison, Nick Burns, Aaron Williamson, Karen King, Boo Boo House, Rachel Ertel. Mike Compton, Ocean Matthews, and Laura Walters.
0: If you like today's episode, please follow us. Uh, rate the show. You can also leave us a review. It really does help out the show.
2: It sure does, and we appreciate it. We'll see you soon.
0: All right. See you next time. Hey, I'm Jeff Liggan. I'm Director of Engineering for Edge and Automotive at Red Hat. One of the most exciting things about edge computing right now is the potential to join forces with AI. There's so much data on the ground that businesses can use to improve services. But running sophisticated AI workloads at the edge is just not a do-it-yourself operation. You get buried in the details very quickly. Specialized hardware, custom-built this and that, workloads in the cloud and at the edge. How do you pick the right devices? What's the OS? How do you update everything? At Red Hat, we don't think those details should be where you have to focus. You can hand that complexity to us. Our edge solutions provide a consistent operational experience for even the most complex workloads from the data center to the cloud to the farthest edge. Learn more at redhat.com edge.